0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our short series with James Jordan going through the book of Leviticus, and here he's going to be talking about the sacrifices. He'll discuss the different offerings, how they were done, and what they meant then and what they mean for us today. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus.
1: If we look at the early chapters of Leviticus, we find there the sacrifices that God required of His people. And as we've seen, these laws reflect the new situation that existed once the tabernacle was set up. Earlier, people just offered sacrifices on altars of earth that they built at various places. Now, however, God had established a place and was establishing rules to regulate these sacrifices. Let's look, first of all, at the chart or map of the tabernacle area that you have in your notebook, because this will help us to understand how these sacrifices were actually brought and offered. At the center, we have the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, and then outside of it, we have the holy place, and there was an altar of incense there in the holy place very close to the curtain that separated the Ark from the rest of the tabernacle proper. And then in the tabernacle courtyard, we have the laver of cleansing, which held water that was drawn off to wash the sacrifices and to wash the priest's hands Then there was the altar, the brazen altar of burnt offering, and next to it an ash pit for the ashes to be put, and then to the side, the area where the animal was slaughtered by the layman. Then there's the gate, you can see, through which the layman entered, bringing his animal, and then outside the tabernacle courtyard was a clean place where certain sacrifices were burnt. If you'll look at that and become familiar with it, then as we walk through some of these sacrifices, we'll have a better idea of how they were actually conducted. We notice right off in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 1 that the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now this is probably not the tabernacle because some of the laws required here were needed for the events surrounding the consecration of the tabernacle itself. Nevertheless there was a tent of meeting that functioned like a tabernacle that Moses met with God at in Exodus 33. And this is the tenth that sort of becomes the tabernacle later on. So these were the rules that would be enforced once the tabernacle itself is set up and Aaron is consecrated and made priest. So, first of all, in chapter 1, we have the whole burnt offering. Now, chapter 1 divides into three sections, and it's in a descending order of importance of the sacrifice. The first and most important sacrifice is the cattle And that's in verses 3 to 9. This would have been the most expensive thing to bring. A bull that is without defect from the herd would be a very expensive sacrifice to have to make. Now these were routinely offered every evening and every morning as well as uh, twice on Sunday. A double sacrifice was offered on Sunday. First day of each month and at special occasions. But there were also times when individual Israelites were required to bring a whole burnt sacrifice. And these laws governed... Those individual offerings. Sometimes it wasn't actually a full bull that was required, it was a sheep or a goat. Less expensive burnt offering to have to bring, and that's given us in verses 10 to 13. And then, for those who couldn't afford that, the sacrifice could take the form of birds, turtle doves, or pigeons. Now, in each case, the person bringing the sacrifice, the layman, would bring it into the gate and into the area of slaughter. And he would kill the sacrifice and drain off the blood. The priest would take the blood and sprinkle it around on the altar, dash it against the altar, and then the layman would cut the sacrifice into pieces, cleanse it, wash it off, skin it, and the skin would be given to the priest, and the rest the priest would burn up on the altar. In the case of the birds, it's a little bit different. It wasn't necessary to cut that off, but the crop and feathers were not burned up. They were cast in the ash pit, and then the priest would sprinkle the blood, and the bird would be burned up as a whole burnt sacrifice. Now, what is the meaning of the whole burnt sacrifice? In the first place, it is food for God. Verse 9 tells us that, and it's important that we see it right off. The priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering. And then the translation that I have before me says, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. That's not the best translation. It should read a food offering of a soothing aroma to the Lord. This was food for God. It symbolized the individual Israelite. And for God to eat this food was a way of speaking that meant that the individual israelite was incorporated into the kingdom of god into the body of christ as it were now the new testament helps us here if we look at revelation chapter 3 verse 16 he says because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold i will spit you out of my mouth well what are we doing in jesus mouth that he should threaten us with this well the fact is that when you come into the church It's like it's coming into the body of Christ, and a symbol for that would be for Christ to eat us into his kingdom. Now, that shouldn't be quite so strange when we consider the fact that we eat Christ into us at the Lord's Supper. We take Christ into our innermost selves. We have the indwelling Christ, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Well, how do these things get inside of us? Well, it's symbolized in the Lord's Supper by us eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that that's primarily symbolic. It's sacramental. There's a mystery to it. But it represents us taking Christ into our lives, into our hearts, and by eating these things. Well, similarly, for us to come into the church, to come into the body of Christ, it's as if Christ ate us, you see. Into his body. In the Old Testament, that was pictured by the people coming into the tabernacle. But people were not acceptable. And so God would refuse to eat the people and incorporate them into his fellowship. Into the fellowship of the tabernacle. The only people allowed in there were the priests. And so the sacrifice came instead and was made as food for God. The sacrifice was a substitute because the man himself was not acceptable due to sin. Now, when God accepts this sacrifice and its death, then the man himself becomes acceptable, at least through the substitute. So first of all, this is a food offering. And we'll see this throughout the book of Leviticus and it'll become clearer and clearer. A food offering for God. And God, by accepting the sacrifice as food, is saying that he accepts the offerer into his kingdom we are included in the body of Christ or what in the Old Testament was called the body of Moses then it also says here in verse 9 secondly that it's a soothing aroma to the Lord the Lord is angry and furious at man's sin but the sacrifice is a sweet smell that causes him not to be angry anymore well that's really set out clearly for us in Genesis chapter 8 verses 20 and 21 right after the flood noah we're told offered every clean animal and every clean bird as burnt offerings on the altar and the lord smelled the soothing aroma and the lord said i will never again curse the ground on account of man so the idea is that god is angry but when he smells the good smell the sweet smell of the sacrifice it averts his anger because man has brought substitute to pay the penalty that man deserves. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, says that we as living sacrifices are a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Now, none of this would count for anything because of man's sin, except that third, the sacrifice is also an atonement substitute for sin. It represents the whole person. And that's why in verse 4 of the laws here. It says the layman will lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering in order that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And so before the sacrifice represents God taking the believer into his fellowship and before it represents a sweet savor that turns away the wrath of God, first of all, it is a substitute for the man and its death substitutes for the man's death. We're not allowed to go into God's presence. We're exiled from Eden. But by bringing the whole burnt offering, then God accepts that as our substitute. And all of this pictures Jesus Christ, of course. His death substitutes for ours. He is our whole burnt sacrifice. And in His death, we become food for God and are accepted into the church and become a sweet savor for Him. So that's what the whole burnt offering meant. It meant that man was not acceptable but God would accept the substitute. And by accepting the substitute and its death, then man might be restored to fellowship with God. Now, following on the whole burnt sacrifice is the cereal offering in chapter 2. So let's switch gears and think about the cereal offering. And there are three sections to the laws regarding the cereal offering here in chapter 2. Verses 1 to 3 give laws for if you bring a grain offering that is not cooked. It'll be fine flour and you put oil on it and put frankincense on it. And then the priest digs his hand in and takes some of it and puts the frankincense and offers it as a soothing aroma to the Lord and the rest of the grain offering goes to Aaron and his sons to eat. Then in verses 4 to 10 it gives various kinds of cooked cereal offerings that can be brought. And in each case part of it is set aside for the Lord and the rest of it goes to Aaron's sons. And then in verses 11 to 14, we have various laws that control this. They're not to bring leaven, they're not to bring honey, but they are to put salt with the sacrifice in each case, as well as oil and incense for the Lord. Now, we can't look at all of these details, unfortunately, because of our survey, but let's do ask the question what is the meaning of the cereal offering? And basically, the word cereal offering, the Hebrew word, means tribute. The money paid by a vassal king to the overlord. And sometimes it means a present, but the main idea is tribute. And the cereal offering is a kind of tribute from the faithful worshiper to God. It helps to keep us in good standing with our king. Now, the most famous cereal offering in the Bible was that brought by Cain. Cain brought a cereal offering to the Lord, of the first fruits and vegetables of his garden, and it was not acceptable. And the reason it was not acceptable is because the cereal offering is not a substitute for human life. It does not represent the man. All of us are under the death penalty from God, and when we lay our hands upon the whole burnt sacrifice, what we're saying is, I deserve to be put on the altar and die, but God will accept a substitute. Now, Abel did that, and that was acceptable to God, but Cain didn't. Cain did not confess that he deserved to die. He just brought a gift to God, and his gift was not acceptable. If we look at how the cereal offering is done, we find that it's always put on top of the burnt offering. And that way it's made plain that God accepts our gifts only after he accepts the sacrifice that we bring. We confess that we deserve to be put to death We make the sacrifice in Jesus Christ, and then our tribute is acceptable. Now, that's the meaning of the cereal offering. It is a tribute of our works to God. Finally, in this section, let's look at the peace offerings. This is all in the first section here, if you look at your chart. The peace offerings that people can bring, and that's in chapter 3. Here again, we have three sections. Verses 1 to 5 had to do with cattle that are brought as peace offerings. Chapter 6 to 11 had to do with sheep that are brought as peace offerings. And then chapter 12 to 17 had to do with goats that are brought as peace offerings. And here again, in each case, we go from the most important to the least important. Now, the procedure for bringing a peace offering is the same as the burnt offering. You bring it in to the gate. You put your hand on it. You kill it. You take the skin off. In this case, you get to keep the skin. But in all the other sacrifices, the skin goes to the priests. The hide goes to the priests. But in this case, you get to keep the hide. But you cut it up. You wash it off. And the priests offer a small part of it on the altar. Part of it is given to God. It's called the fat part. And that implies that it's the best part. The rest of it... Part of it is given to the priests and part of it is given back to you to have for a fellowship meal. And that's what makes the peace offering different. It is a fellowship meal with God and with the priests that you eat on this occasion. Now, let's look over at Leviticus chapter 7 and we'll see the three occasions when the peace offering is made. We're talking about peace offering, which represents fellowship with God. It's a communion meal. And there are three kinds of peace offerings. There's the thanksgiving offering. This is in chapter 7, verse 12. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, then he does such and such. And then in verse 16, if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive or free will offering. So there are three categories. The thanksgiving offering, the votive or offering for vows, and the free will offerings. Now, those are the three categories of peace offerings. Thanksgiving offerings was offered whenever you were delivered from death or from danger. The big example of that is Passover. Passover is a peace offering. The lamb is roasted and is eaten by the people, and yet it's also a sacrifice. So it's a variety of peace offering, and it's a Thanksgiving offering because the distinctive mark of the Thanksgiving variant is that the food has to be eaten in one day, and that is what Passover requires. Then you also would bring a peace offering if you had fulfilled a vow. If you took a vow and God enabled you to fulfill it, then at the time that your vow was over with, you brought the peace offering to fulfill your vow as gratitude to God. And the preeminent example of that is the Nazarite, and his laws are given in Numbers chapter 6. But when the Nazarite's vow is fulfilled, then he brings a peace offering to show that he is grateful to God for enabling him to fulfill his vow. And then finally, there's the free will version of the peace offering. Anytime that you feel like that God has prospered you and you want to give him special thanks and you want to take a holiday and you go up to the tabernacle, then you can bring along an animal and sacrifice it and share part of it with the Lord and part of it with the priest and part of it you eat yourself. Of course, this was a lot of fun. Because you could sit in there and get close to the tabernacle and look and see what's going on, although you couldn't see inside. And you could always ask the priest, have a long interview with him, and find out what's really going on inside there, what's it really like. So it would be a combination religious retreat and festival for you, and you could do it any time you wanted or any time you could afford it. So those are the three varieties of peace offerings. The thanks offering, the vow or votive offering, and the free will offering. And the general meaning of the peace offering, then, was fellowship with God. Now, we have got the first three sacrifices before us. The whole burnt offering, the cereal offering, and the peace offering. In summary, these three sacrifices existed before the tabernacle was set up. But now they are brought under the rule of the tabernacle. We see people offering these three sacrifices back in Genesis and the first part of Exodus before the tabernacle was set up. Now the tabernacle is set up, we have a priesthood, and it's regulated. What these three sacrifices do is they provide a way for man to be included back in fellowship with God. In the whole burnt offering, the substitute goes in and takes the death that we deserve. In the cereal offering, following on that, we are allowed to bring tribute to the king of kings. And in the Peace offering, which follows upon that, we are allowed to come in and sit down and have a fellowship meal with the King of Kings. And it's important for us to see that these are three dimensions on worship. We affirm the absolute transcendence of God and our absolute worthlessness in sin. And then we come and bow before Him as King of Kings, bringing our tribute and our offering, affirming that He is our King. And finally, we are allowed to sit down and fellowship with him as our father and our elder brother. And you see how that works. We draw nearer and nearer here. The only person who is allowed to come in and call God Father is the person who's bowed before him as king and the person who even before that has confessed his own sinfulness and the fact that he deserves to die. And these three offerings in that progression set this before us in man's inclusion, with God in fellowship. Well, so that's the first three offerings, and now we come to two new sacrifices that are set up with the coming of the tabernacle, and these are the purification offering and the reparation offering. Now, we have to spend a little bit of time talking about terminology. Your Bible in chapter 4 may talk about the sin offering. Unfortunately, that just doesn't get us anywhere. All the sacrifices were for sin. The proper translation of the Hebrew word here is purification, offering. Then when you get on over to Leviticus chapter 5, you may read about the guilt offering or the trespass offering. Here again, that doesn't get us very far because that's not the only idea involved. The actual idea in the sacrifice is paying back to God what we've stolen from him, and so we call it a reparation offering. Just think about that. We're going to talk about purification offerings mainly in chapter 4 and reparation offerings mainly in chapter 5. And going on over into chapter 6, our English Bible chapter divisions are not very helpful here. Uh, The Hebrew Bible actually has much better chapter divisions, but unfortunately I'm addressing people with English Bibles, and will have to go with those chapter divisions. What then was the overall meaning of these two new sacrifices, the purification and reparation offering? Well, once the tabernacle was set up, uh, it was possible that the tabernacle would be defiled by human sin, and God would threaten then either to pass judgment on the whole congregation because his house had been defiled, or else God would just pack up and leave. And that would also remove the protection from the congregation. And so in order to prevent this from happening, the tabernacle itself needed to be cleansed. Now how did defilement get onto the tabernacle? Somebody commits a sin out in the boondocks, out of the edge of the camp, let's say, because we're still in the wilderness now. How is it that the tabernacle itself becomes defiled? Well, it's because the tabernacle symbolized the people. God's house is made of people, not of wood, not of stone, and not a uh, tent. It's made of people. And these other things just symbolize people. When the people are defiled, then symbolically the tabernacle is also defiled. And so the people need to be cleansed, but so does the tabernacle itself. Where God won't live there anymore, he'll leave. So the meaning of cleansing the tabernacle was cleansing the nation. And the one symbolized the other. You couldn't go through smearing blood on all the people, but you could go through and smear blood on the various parts of the tabernacle representing the people. Now, the purification offering had to do with cleansing the tabernacle. It didn't have to do with cleansing people. The reparation offering, on the other hand, was for certain sins that a person might commit that stole God's glory and honor. And if a person stole God's glory and honor or swore falsely, then he would have to make it up to God. And these are debts. So let's look at these offerings. They had to be brought, particularly the purification offering had to be brought before you could bring any other sacrifice. The place had to be kept cleansed. So if you had become unclean somehow or other, ceremonially, so that the tabernacle was unclean, then before you could bring your other offerings, you had to bring a purification offering to clean the tabernacle. Then God would allow you to bring the burn offering. I look over at Leviticus chapter 9, and this is the record of how Aaron became high priest, and we'll notice what he has to do first. Verse 8, he came near the altar and slaughtered the calf of the purification offering, which was for himself. Then in verse 12, then he slaughtered the burnt offering. So, first of all, the purification offering is slaughtered. And it says, Aaron's sons, verse 9, presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put some on the horns of the altar, poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. So, the tabernacle furniture itself, you see, is cleansed, and then, God would allow Aaron to come in and offer the burnt offering. Similarly in verses 15 to 17, Then Aaron presented the people's offering and took the goat of the purification offering which was for the people and slaughtered it and offered it for purification like the first. And then he presented the burnt offering and offered it. Next he presented the cereal offering and filled his hand with some of it and offered it up in smoke on the altar. Besides the burnt offering of the morning, well, and then, Verse 18, then you have peace offerings last of all, as we've seen. So what's the main idea in the purification offering? Well, it's to cleanse the tabernacle so that God won't leave. God will stay around and receive your other sacrifices and have fellowship with you. Now let's look at the purification offering in detail. You have an outline of the passage in your notebook, the thing to notice in the outline is well, there are two things. First of all, notice the hierarchical arrangement of these laws. That's going to be important to us when we come back around to looking at the covenant creation structure of these chapters. Right now, notice that we go from the worst sin committed by the high priest and then a sin committed by the whole congregation. That is some inadvertent sin, some sin that people that slipped up on you, and then you realize that you defile God and so you bring the sacrifice. Then you move down to the tribal leader and then the ordinary person. and then we move down to even lesser sacrifices for lesser kinds of sins that poorer people might bring. So there's a hierarchical arrangement. The second thing to notice is that there is a difference in the ritual. If the priest or the congregation as a whole commits a sin, this creates a much greater defilement than if an ordinary person commits a sin. If you look back at your diagram of the tabernacle area, look at the holy place and then look at the altar. The altar is on the outside, the holy place is on the inside. Now, ordinary sins committed by ordinary people translate into are symbolically equivalent to the defilement of the altar. An ordinary person becomes morally defiled, then the altar becomes ceremonially defiled and the altar has to be cleansed. But if the high priest who represents all the people, or else all the people themselves commit a sin, that's much more powerful and the symbolic equivalent is the defilement of the holy place. And so the holy place becomes defiled, and the symbol of that is the altar that's there, the altar of incense, which is inside the holy place. Uh, The idea again is symbolic equivalences. When An ordinary person sins it's symbolically equivalent to the altar being defiled, so the altar has to be cleansed. When the high priest or all the people as a whole commit a sin, then that's symbolically equivalent to the defiling of the holy place, the altar of burnt incense, the golden altar, it becomes defiled and it has to be cleansed. Now, what happens to the sacrifice? How does this work? Well, you bring the sacrifice in and it's slaughtered and if you're a layman, your blood is put on the altar and the altar is cleansed from your sin that has attracted itself to it symbolically. And that means that you're cleansed. But the primary thing here is that the altar itself is cleansed. And so it's no longer before God's face and he's willing to remain. What happens to the sacrifice? Well, the sin is taken from you and from the furniture in the tabernacle and goes on to the sacrifice. The sacrifice takes the sin. As the New Testament says concerning Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And that happens with the purification offering. The flesh of the sacrificed animal becomes unclean. So now all the uncleanness has gone off of the altar and off of you, and it's gone out of God's sight, and it's all been put on this animal. And so now the animal has to be destroyed. And there are two different rules for that. Now, what are the two different situations in which The purification offering, what is done with the meat in the two different situations? Well, a very serious trespass or a very serious inadvertent sin committed, the sin itself is not serious, a sin committed by an important person defiles the golden altar. And that's a very strong defilement. And that defilement passes off onto the bull that is brought as a purification offering. But the defilement is so strong that the animal itself now must be completely burned up. Part of it's burned up on the altar, and part of it is taken out to a clean place and burned up outside the camp. And that is on your diagram. Now, this clean place, in order to be clean, really can't be on the ground because the ground is cursed in the Old Testament, especially outside the tabernacle. And so it almost certainly is an altar elevated off the ground. And by the time of the New Covenant, then there was some type of an altar outside of Jerusalem where these things were burned. So I've drawn an altar there, and it makes the most sense to me that there was an altar, some type of an elevated platform of stone on which these things were burned. And it's completely burned up. That's the only thing that can be done with it because it has attracted all of the defilement off of the golden altar for sins committed by important persons that is the high priest or the congregation as a whole now less important people like you and me and a mere political leader of the nation our sins only defile the brazen altar in the court and we only have to bring a sheep or a goat and these are brought by us and the defilement is taken off of the altar and goes on to the sheep now because it's not such an intensive defilement it's possible to get rid of that by cooking it and so that animal is roasted or cooked in a pot and the defilement goes off of the animal and onto the pot and then the pot in which is cooked has to be broken if it's clay pot or scoured out if it's a bronze pot we find these laws a little bit later on in leviticus chapter six but that is how the defilement is taken care of and once that animal is being cooked and the defilement, ceremonial defilement has gone off of it, then the priests can eat it, and that is what's done with it. Now again, we see that the idea here is symbolic attraction. The sins are attracted from us and deface these two altars. Important people who stand in the holy place defile the altar that's in the holy place. Less important people who, so to speak, stand in the courtyard. Their sins defile, deface the altar that's in the courtyard. And you have to bring sacrifices to take care of that. Now, when the animal is killed and the blood is taken and sprinkled on these altars, blood is put on the corners of the horns of the altars, and that way they are cleansed. Now, there are two different situations listed here in chapters 4 and 5 for the purification offering. The first is inadvertent sins, that is, sins that you and I commit, not premeditatively, not with a high hand, but in anger or forgetting what our responsibilities are or something like that. Then we bring these sacrifices to cleanse the tabernacle. And then there are, in chapter 5, there are sins of omission. And there are basically three kinds of sins of omission given here. In verse 1, giving false witness in court. In verses 2 and 3, becoming unclean and not doing what's necessary to get cleansed so that you carry it on with you for the next several days. You don't take care of it the right way, and now you have to bring a sacrifice. And then third is taking a vow. Okay. Taking a vow and forgetting about it and then realizing that you didn't keep your promise. Making a promise and breaking it. These sins of omissions require you to bring a purification offering because they make God mad. God's house becomes dirty and ugly as a result of these sins because his house is made of people and the tabernacle symbolizes that. The beauty of the tabernacle symbolizes the beauty of God's people. But when we sin, then Our beauty becomes ugly, and the tabernacle becomes ugly, and God is angry, so the tabernacle has to be cleansed. All right, we note the hierarchical arrangement of these laws, and now we pass on to the reparation offering. The reparation offering is different. The animals used for the reparation offering are the two animals that are not used for the purification offering. So again, you see these two kind of go together, one filling in the gap for the other. There are two literary sections on the reparation offering. The first, in chapter 5, verse 14 to 19, says that a reparation offering has to be brought when a person has stolen from God, basically. And in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, a reparation offering has to be brought when a person commits perjury very serious sins and they involve money and we see these two kinds here now actually there are three situations noted and they correspond to the three situations for the purification offering only they're much more intense first of all the first situation is in verses 15 and 16 if a person commits a trespass by being inadvertently remiss with any of the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt or reparation offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, which is convertible in silver by shekels in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary as a reparation offering. Well, what's the situation here? To understand it, we would have to look at Leviticus 27 where people dedicate things to God and then they fail to pay what they vowed. And when that happens, then they have to make it up and if you take a vow to the Lord and you don't pay it and then you realize later on that you've sinned and you've kept it then you have to bring a reparation offering and add twenty percent so this is like the promises that you might break in which case you need to bring a purification offering only in this case it's a vow to dedicate something to the Lord much more serious and if you break that Then you have to bring a reparation offering and you also have to add 20% to the value of what you took from God in verse 16. Now the second case, it says if a person sins and does any of the things that the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, when he comes to feel guilty about it, then he will bear his responsibility by bringing to the priest a ram without defect from the flock or else its valuation as a reparation offering. This is like those sins of becoming unclean and not doing the right thing. Only this is worse. This is moral commands that the Lord has given that we might break and commit trespasses. And again, we're stealing from God's glory when we do this. When we steal from God's glory, then we have to bring a financial recompense to Him. We have to make a restitution. And so that's why this is called a reparation offering. Or trespass offering. And we have it in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That language in the New Testament refers to the reparation offering. Our sins against God are like debts. And the debts have to be made up. All right, finally, the third case, which is given a separate literary section, is for perjury remember we saw just a few minutes ago that a purification offering would be brought according to chapter 5 verse 1 if a person gives false witness in court that is he's put under oath and he just doesn't say what needs to be said here the situation is much worse here you've committed a crime and you're put under oath and you lie about it you commit theft and then you add to it lying about it then you come to your senses and feel guilty then you have to bring a reparation offering and this is a high-handed premeditated sin and the theological problem here is that other places the bible says that there is no sacrifice for high-handed premeditated sin especially adding perjury to it before the lord an oath before the lord well the idea here is that a person confesses his sin and that confession reduces the sin from a high-handed sin to an inadvertent sin. The act of confessing satisfies God as far as the high handedness is concerned. And now the sin is transferred to a lesser category and reparation can be made. Now the basic idea in the reparation offering is that the wrath of God is turned away from you as an individual because of the sins that you've committed. In the purification offering, the idea is that God's house is defiled and it has to be cleaned up. It's defiled by our sins and so we have to bring the blood of Jesus Christ to clean up God's house. The idea in the reparation offering is the reverse of that in the sense that it is pointed on the individual. The individual sins and God may become mad at the individual and the individual has to bring money to God. He has to bring 20% to make up what he stole and what he swore falsely about. These then are the five basic kinds of sacrifices. Let's review them. Let's review them. There's the whole burnt offering which signifies God's wrath against the person for his sin. There is the cereal offering, which has to do with making tribute to God once he's satisfied with the substitute that we brought. Then there's the peace offering, which has to do with fellowship with God. Now we have two new sacrifices, the purification offering that cleanses God's house because it gets defiled, and the reparation offering that averts God's wrath from us because of our sin. Now, in conclusion of this lecture, let's look at this chart of the covenant model and see where these fit. And we'll find that we'll be doing this right through. Remember, we're going to peg our understanding of the book of Leviticus to this fivefold creation covenant structure. The first dimension of the covenant is God's transcendence and his relationship with man. Now, I've got transcendence, relationship, and immanence there. The first commandment says, You're to have no other gods before me, and the sixth commandment says, You're not to kill another human being, not to slay another man. Well, in this section, we have the burnt offering, cereal offering, and peace offering, which establish God's transcendence, our fealty to him, and our fellowship with him. Then secondly, the second dimension of the covenant is the restructuring and new hierarchy aspect. You take what's there and you restructure it and you create a new system. The second commandment says that there's to be no other mediator, there are to be no idols, and that we are to observe only Jesus Christ as our mediator, and we're not to commit adultery. Well, here we have the purification offerings, and we know the strict hierarchical arrangement here. There are probably other things that could be said about it, but it definitely tends to connect with this hierarchy in the way the laws are phrased. The third aspect of the covenant are the stipulations, the distribution of the kingdom to certain people and then rules about how they're supposed to live. And because that distributing aspect is so prominent, then theft becomes the major crime here. You don't take what God has given to somebody else. And so in this section, the third literary section that we're looking at, we have the laws with reparation offerings for theft. Then the fourth aspect of the covenant are evaluations and judgments. That has to do with the Sabbath, but it also has to do with giving false witness in court. That has to do with passing judgments and evaluations. And the fourth literary section that we're looking at is reparation for perjury. So definitely seems to fit that covenant model. Now, finally, we'll look at this next time. The last aspect of the covenant is the succession. We set up new administrators. And they're to be honored. You honor your parents that you may live long on the land. And the Tenth Commandment says to honor God with your money. It says don't covet your neighbor's stuff. And then when it gets positive, the Tenth Commandment is explained in the law in terms of giving your tithe and your offering. And here we'll look in chapters 6 through 10. The priests become the new administrators, the new Adams to take over the world from God and administer these things. And they are to be honored by being given part of the sacrifices. They become parents, so to speak, to Israel. Well, those are the sacrifices and basically what they meant and how they were offered. Now, let me make a suggestion to you. If you found this to be new and hard to understand, I suggest you play this tape a couple of times and read over this part of Leviticus before you move to the next tape, because we have to build. And the next time, we'll be looking at the priest's part in doing these sacrifices, and we'll have to assume that we're familiar with what we've already looked at.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis,